Hello there. We're trying to keep Coral Chihuahua going, and so we draw your attention to the possibility of listening to us on Patreon for just a few quid a month. This also magically gets rid of the ads. That's Patreon with an E, patreon.com forward slash Coral Chihuahua. On with the app. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Right. Morning, Robert. How are you? Uh, I'm lovely. Uh, and I managed not to say lush this week. Um, I've got the sun absolutely pouring into my eyes uh, here in York. And upstairs, I've got builders taking a wall down. And then there's people digging the road up outside and Catherine playing some gibbons on a harpsichord above the ceiling here. So there may be no, noises off. Gibbons with a capital G, presumably. Uh, yes, yeah. which reminds me of an introduction I did to gibbons, Oh, Clap Your Hands, once, remembering that there had been gibbons um, outside a venue in South Africa where we played once. And I announced the whole thing, but I had remem- misremembered it as baboons. And now... Uh, and then I, I was hoping to say, here's a piece by Orlando. Gibbons, which which wasn't baboons. Anyway, um, you're in Cardiff doing Messiah, I think? No. So I'm in Cardiff um, doing St. John Passion with uh-huh. the BBC and with Gareth Malone, who's conducting, and with uh, Aoife Adjani favourites, Jules Doyle and Roderick Williams. Um, and so we, we've not started. Today's the first day of rehearsal and quite excited i think it's being um filmed for your television screens and uh yeah that's that's where we are rehearsal start later today uh, but we've got a special guest today robert we have we have polyphonic royalty in the room exactly. uh, identify identify yourself hello um i'm claire wilkinson and and you you have the advantage here because Rather like Obelix in the Asterix books, you were dipped into the polyphony cauldron uh, when you were a baby. And so you had a sort of innate advantage. Your father, a well-known conductor and composer, uh, he was Birdman, wasn't he? He was William Bird was his. Yeah, he was absolutely crazy about Bird. But he didn't get me involved in Bird till I was a teenager, really. But I heard things going on in the background. Um and sang at school a certain amount. And when I was allowed to join his choir, then I got to sing the Bird Five-Part Mass within a few months in an Elizabethan barn and got the bug. 
pretty much at that point. Claire, say the words. Welcome to Coral Chihuahua. <laughs> it's a Morales thing. Well, we, we thought we should talk about polyphony because it's something that we all think we know what it is and we all have a, a view on. Um, but I, I, I wanted just to, I mean, I, I coach these things up here that you've both worked with uh, on the, the MA at the University of York in solo voice ensemble singing. And we talk a lot about polyphony. Well, I certainly talk a lot about polyphony. They mostly have to sit and listen. Um, and I, I've become increasingly interested in what makes a good performance um and there are so many well i mean to start with what polyphony is i mean it means literally many sounding and that could encompass a lot of different types of music in which different things are laid on top of each other but where this episode is at least going to start is how the term applies to the great compositional achievement of 16th century music which is imitative polyphony in which a texture is created out of several people singing roughly the same melody, so imitating each other, but with the lines slightly separated from each other at slightly different times and pitches to create a sort of wonderful web of sound. The first thing we'll hear is a simple demonstration of this. We spoke um, last year, I think, because it was his the anniversary year of his death. We spoke with uh, Dr. Katie Bank, who, and one of her favourite things was this use of three-part polyphony, which allows you to hear really precisely all the voices in conversation. And here is almost, I think, the finest example of that, which is the Agnus Dei from Bird's Mass for Three Voices.
Tallis scholars there with Peter Phillips, whose 50th birthday it is, the group, and Peter's 70th, I think, uh, in a sensational bit of writing, really, because we can all get very excited about Speminalium, you know, 40-part polyphony or a lovely seven-part piece. But in that piece, which is often just two voices, actually, it reminds me of, um, you know, from a generation earlier, Josquin writing so much two-part polyphony in his motet. You can hear everything. You can follow the argument. Um, it's sensationally interesting to sing because isn't it a thing in polyphony sometimes that it's it's difficult to get your head around just how much is going on? Yeah, exactly. It's a piece of rhetoric. I like the way you use the word argument there. And rhetoric, of course, needs structure, but there's a lot of detail inside it. So it exists on two planes, doesn't it? There's the large scale of the whole piece and there's the detail of what's going on around you. And as you say, it can feel like you're enmeshed or woven in at times. And the clarity um, of the two and three part texture really shows us in that piece of bird how you can unpick while you're on the go. It just makes me think as well of another more literal meaning of the word polyphony. I looked it up in Grove to see what he had to say about it. And he went back to the Greek. It can also mean loquacious or abundant in linguistic expression. So it's quite wordy in its background. It's not only about different sounds going together. Yeah, that's right. And that's one of the things I was thinking about today was that the idea of polyphony as an expression somehow of the nature of because obviously it's most when we think about it we think about mostly religious music and it's an expression of the nature of prayer in in the sense that everybody's saying their own thing in their own way but it also comes together and so it's no surprise that you know theologians down the centuries have latched onto music and particularly polyphony as a way of enhancing prayer it's the old is it augustinian quis cantat bis orat Ooh, yes, he who I like sings that. praise twice, which is the thing that we were always, you know, it was always kind of drummed into us as, as choristers, especially. It's like this is, it doesn't matter if there's not a congregation there, this is a, a prayerful thing off, offered uh, skywards. Yeah, and that's the thing. Who is who is it for, actually? And in a piece like that, a piece of bird like that, it's for the Almighty, isn't it? Directly. It's not for anybody else. Though it's also selfishly nice to do yeah it's incredibly pleasing isn't it to sing but but in some ways especially when you can hear the argument to use your word robert slightly reluctantly um you hear the argument so clearly it's actually music about music as well isn't it it's kind of in the way that it refers to itself it's kind of it's its own little glorious kind of crystal world this is quite quite profound for so early in the program we all said we didn't know any four-syllable words, and you two have just, uh, you know, d- dove right in. I, I think the, the 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 question about who's it for is a question for then and a question for now. Um, Bird would have would have been right. I mean, those masses. I was listening to Carwood last night on YouTube talking about the masses mm-hmm. and and, um, and talking also about. Um, uh, the Gradualia, the, the publication of music for the Catholic liturgy that he published in the same year as the gunpowder plot. And what a crazy, dangerous thing it was to do. Completely, you know, not allowed. And these, these, you know, this was for his personal relationship between him and his God. 
and for the people performing them that had to say the mass. The mass didn't have to have um, a congregation present. Um, and when you get into the, the great settings of his 1575 collaboration with Talis, the, the Cantiones Sacre, these are s- sacred songs, um, not for the liturgy at this stage, but just for people to sit and meditate on the nature of God. Um, I, I suppose I, I disagree with you slightly about um, whether it was a, just a, well, it wasn't just a religious thing. I mean, people are writing madrigals in the same style. That's one of the strange things about um, a book by Philippe Verdelot from the 1520s that you've got basically madrigals being written in the style of the motet at the time, um, and uh, French chanson also being written in a in a polyphonic style, a rather slightly different one, a sort of rather harder edged. Um, style with often a lot of double or just single entendre in it. Um, I think it's worth just just showing where this came from because in the 15th century, polyphony was much more florid in the top parts and the lower parts would be a little bit more like a sort of fundament to the whole thing. So I think that the technical nature of imitative polyphony is is extraordinary. And, And fairly quickly, people started complaining and saying, well, you can't really hear the words um, which I think you know, one has to hold one's hand up to and say, yeah, that is, that is the case in four and five part polyphony, which is why it's such a staggering thing about that bird on your stay. Okay, so I suppose most people that might be listening to this program might know the, the text for the on your stay, but everything is so clear. It's just like a, a, a discussion. And, and, and as we said, with, with two part um, text in as well. But the other bit of that, who's it for, is who's it for now? Because most of us put on concerts and we put on concerts to an audience. Uh, and an audience sitting in a church or in a concert hall hears the sound as a sort of wodge being transferred from the stage to them. And it's not surprising, is it, that going back to what we were talking about last time, Sammy, about the, the sort of easy listening nature of, of choral music and Renaissance music, that that is the case, because you can't really appreciate everything if you're some distance from the sound and the sound's coming to you as one thing. Exactly right. And I also think there's a there's a power to hearing the music in the context for which it was intended um, that we we miss quite, cons- quite significantly in concert performances. Firstly, unless you're careful, of course, you have quite a lot of the same sound going on, you know, the... Whole bird mass, for example, glorious though it is, is by definition the same sound world for about what about what are we about 20, 20, 30 minutes of music. Whereas to hear hear the you know the Arnest Day the at the um, elevation of the Eucharist or those things to hear the the mass punctuating the the music of the mass punctuating the right of the mass, I think is is again just takes us a little bit closer to to the composer's original intention. Yes, I think also we have to go back to what uh, Robert likes to hear about, to say, sorry, about letting the audience overhear. So rather than presenting it as a wodge, you're doing your thing, be that in a church or in a concert hall, and the audience are listening in. So it's actually not something that you're presenting. It's more of a private experience uh, between you and God or between you and the people you're singing with. Um, and they're being allowed to listen in. And that's that's also an expression of, of faith, isn't it? That sense of, of co- collaborative or, or collective prayer. Is it is it sort of, sort of, you know, where two or three of you are gathered together, it's sort of superior 
to individual prayer, which is again adds kind of theosophical value to the to the act of making music. Nice. <laughs> While we're on that, Claire, I wondered if we might want to talk about a little bit about because you were talking about letting the audience in and making it a more of a sort of private thing, which we I know we've spoken about before in terms of perf- performance in inverted commas. What do you, what do we need to talk about as as singers of polyphony to make it successful to make it clear I suppose to make the argument um, speak to an audience? Yeah, well, there are two threads to that, aren't there? There's there's how you actually sing it, and then there's how that group of people get on with each other, and how that group of people what kind of chemistry they have. Um, so I don't know whether we should talk first about how you sing it what kind of vocal attributes you need or how you might approach it. And I've been trying to think about what you need, really. Um, It's not only about the voice, of course. You need to sing cleanly to avoid that wodge and to make sure that the text that's there does come through. You need to understand what you're singing about for the same reason. So you need the simplicity, but it needs also not to be bland, because that wasn't the idea. It's a worthwhile exercise. It's worth applying your brain to it. So you need open ears all the time and open eyes. So you need to pick up each other's signals, oral and visual. You need a sixth sense somehow. And this is both vocal and social you need to be able to set your ego aside somehow you need to become something greater than the sum of your parts you need to remember that you're one thread in the in the carpet that you're weaving or the tapestry that you're weaving Um, so all these things need to feed into how you sing so in some ways the vocal work needs to have happened elsewhere beforehand And when you arrive there, you need not to be thinking about your voice too much, except as a vehicle for what you're doing and as a support network for your friends. I hate both of you. Um, I just, (laughs) it's just, you know, Savvy, you've often said, you know, uh, singing is simple, really. You just need this idea that you cannot think about your singing. I mean, you, of course, entirely right. It's just I know hundreds of people will be out there listening and say, well, that's easy for them to say. But, I mean, yes, it is. I mean, in one way, we've sort of jumped We jumped in at level three because I think most people sing this music as several to a part in a choir. Um, and I think we sort of assume that one to a part is best, but perhaps we should just say something about that. Um, I mean, frankly, anything is great. Any way people now choose to experience polyphony, that's fantastic. And, I mean, we could use the word polyphony just to mean 16th century um, music for voices in general. Uh, We're trying to talk about something that is counterpoint, that has different strands going on at different times. But but, but it is different when you're singing one to a part. Um, And why I think the three of us, you know, absolutely love singing this repertoire, because when you're in control of your own line, when uh, when you're changing what you do, because of the way someone has just phrased the phrase before you, that is like high-level online gaming, which I've never done, as I think I've said before. <laughs> um, in that it's 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 just totally now, it's in the movement, it's in the in the moment. Um, and you can't do that when you're when you're in a choir, partly because 
there are two other or three other people in your part. Very interesting, by the way, the talent scholars generally sing with two to a part because that's a very difficult thing to do. I think three is easier, one is easier. I think t- singing two to a part is is the ha- the hardest thing really. And, and I know string, pl- I've certainly spoken to string players who feel the same that that one one to a part or three to a part is much much easier. That sort of complicity with direct complicity with one other person can be hugely challenging. But the the other issue is is there a conductor? And I think this. This is something that we we all feel strongly about in that if there is a conductor, which we all know needs to be there sometimes because of of, of sheer lack of of time and because usually the conductor is the one who has organised the bleeding thing to start with and is paying the bills at the end of the day, isn't that the moment that the singers stop taking as much responsibility for their own line? Can you conduct polyphony? Eamon's not here, but Sam, you conducted polyphony on occasion. Yeah, and... I think like a lot of conducting for me at least it's it's a it's a case of of kind of being in charge of rehearsal and trying to establish the parameters that you're that you're looking for um and then kind of slowly or quickly making yourself redundant so that if, eventually you can just give a downbeat and then and then walk away is it fair to describe yourself in that situation as a facilitator I think that's exactly it. You want you want to enable and empower people to express the music how in the way they want to, but perhaps if they need, perhaps particularly an amateur choir would or an amateur group would need just a little bit of guidance and a, and maybe some just tips about how to unify things. I mean, were Eamon to be here, and I think we will come back to polyphony, he would talk about actually conducting it because if you conduct one thing, you're de facto not conducting something else. Everyone pushes and pulls at different times in polyphony. Someone has the the main point of the phrase at one time when someone else is coming away from it and someone else is waves. Waves, I think, is a very good way to, to think about polyphony. Let's see if we can hear waves in Claire, your choice. Tell us what we're going to hear. And it's a piece we all, we all love and we all independently thought should be in this programme. <laughs> That's quite funny. Um, it's a piece by uh, Jacobus Clemens, not the Pope, for avoidance of any confusion. Clemens non papa, um, ego flos campi. So it's a setting of the Song of Songs. And this is one that I chose when I thought we were going to be talking about polyphony um, for the simplicity of its lines, which are just moving against each other in a horizontal manner. And the dissonances seem to arise naturally, incidentally, as it were. Um, and the harmony is the not the senior partner. The, the horizontal is definitely the senior partner in this. And it's not a heart-on-sleeve sort of setting or a heart-on-sleeve sort of performance, but it's nevertheless very deeply felt. And we, sh- we should just add that this beautiful... Is it seven-part, this piece? Mm. Like seven-part uh, polyphony. It suddenly stops the polyphony at one point and says... Secret Lilium uh, as the lily in the valley, because that was the motto of the organization who had commissioned this piece. And he wanted to be absolutely clear that that motto could be heard. This is Henry's Eight.
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That was Henry's Eight. May not be a group that uh, younger listeners, if we had any, uh, were terribly aware of. Uh, they were big, I think, back in the 90s. Were they ex- Trinity Cambridge singers. Sammy, so they were named after Henry VIII, who founded Trinity. If kept, correct me if any of this is wrong. Um, and they were taken on, I think, in sort of the mid nineties by Jonathan Brown, now of a Westminster Abbey. Um, they recorded quite prolifically, quite briefly, and then I think disbanded with a bit of acrimony, as some of the original members wanted to uh, wanted to take the name elsewhere, and. I've, the reason I remember this is that one of the, the one of their last gigs, post acrimony but pre actual disbanding, was in Poland or somewhere, and they went to the venue, and there was a poster outside the venue, and there was a misprint on the poster, and the name of the group was actually uh, printed as Henry's Fight. And to the accompaniment of an electric drill upstairs as the ceiling comes down, uh, this is our reminder to uh, consider listening to us on Patreon. If you go to coralchihuahua.com. You're offered a number of ways to listen to the programme. Uh, Patreon would just give us a few pounds a month and help, help us make the programme. Uh, and do, of course, tell your friends about us as well. Um, hang around because we've got an outstanding track to play you uh, at the end. But let's just go back to, to Henry's Eight there and that performance. One thing about polyphony that I'm slightly obsessed with, Claire, you'll remember being in the show Talis in Wonderland that we did a few years ago, is about how you get polyphony across to people now because... Polyphony is a singer's art in a way. It's there for God in a piece of sacred music. It's there for the people who are singing it, perhaps if you're singing a secular piece. Um, yes, some of this music would have been performed to people at court uh, in the 16th century, but essentially, the, the I mean, if you haven't been out and sung any polyphony, do do take part yourself because that the way one part rubs up against the other and 
and plays against it is fascinating. Is that enough for an audience? How do you how do you draw these lines out more, or should you be doing less of that? People have very strong opinions on this based on the fact that the sound of the music has a certain sheen to it and is rather lovely on itself. Yes. Well, this is another question. Does it need words to tell a story, polyphony, actually? Because um, sometimes it's done without. We're talking particularly about singers' polyphony. But um, I work quite a lot with Jacob Herringman, who, of course, puts polyphony on his lute. And those lines also taken from a vocal point of view onto the lute, um, have their own shape and can tell their story. So that's perhaps a separate question, but uh, do they need the words? Are the words important in this? Um, I think if the words are there, you have to use them and you have to share them and you have to make sure that they're as clear as they can be. But what's your thought on this, Sammy? Well, I think... Thank you for asking. I think uh, I, I think the, my basic principle for all singing is that the words have to matter, otherwise you wouldn't be singing them. And I think there's a tradition that this music, like as you said, Robert, has a sort of sheen and a certain distance uh, between the interpreter and the music and the text that I'm not sure that I totally subscribe to. It's totally a matter of taste. I'm not saying I'm right, although I'm right. Um, but just a sense that the way that we articulate the text for that performance, I think, is lovely. I've been listening to it a lot recently, the Henry's Eight. But they could enjoy and, and and kind of be more expressive, I think, with the way they individually articulate the text. Partly, I think, because I don't think, I don't find that it's, that that detracts from the whole picture. It's much, it actually contributes and you want, you're drawn to one voice here and another voice there. And that's one of the pleasures, really, of, of listening and of singing the, the music, that you you don't get a sort of wash of sound. You get individual voices and individual threads coming up. And I mean, you mentioned a, a tapestry before. Some threads will come up and, and and be raised in the texture and others will you'll hear less frequently. And I think that's a nice, a richer listening experience. It is. I, I, I do think that's a fairly even, even performance in which notes seem to follow other nights, notes in a fairly... I mean, it's, that's quite a flat plane, I would say. Can you have any other kind of plane? Um, I, 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 go, I go walking along the Malvern Hills sometimes, which is odd because I live in York, and as you look out over the, Worcestershire, over, over the Worcestershire side, it's very, very flat. If you look onto the Hereford side, it's much, much more undulating. There's much more character to it. And I think in polyphony, you have to bring out your line more than you would if you were just singing it as a melody, because you've got several people around you doing the same thing and yours won't, the, the character of your line won't come out uh, if you don't just accentuate the, the hills and the troughs. And it's the same with text. Your text will get lost. And, okay, so if, if they didn't think back then that the text could really be heard, um, do we have, should we still be worrying about it? Um, and I think part of the answer to that relates back to the issue of the sort of sheen of it. The reason, part of the reason that, that, that people don't bother too much with um, real performance of this polyphony is that generally it was put together for services in which you have very little rehearsal time. I mean, you remember someone saying on the programme last summer in that they'll say, the canticles today are Stanford in C, there will be no rehearsal, here's the anthem. And if you're... It, 
if you get used to performing it like that, then when you come to do it in concert, why would, why would you do it any different? I'm also interested, as if you're standing in front of some students coaching this stuff, you, you have to have these views. Um, I, I, I keep going back to this, this, these words, well-wrought. Is ring the adjective from that? Yes, uh, the, the verb from that probably is. Anyway, I think polyphony has to be well-wrought. And when it's one to a part, you can really ring the W, uh, the, the words. Uh, and the other thing about text in polyphony is that because words are being sung at slightly different times in the different parts, unlike homophony, when you sing the words exactly together, like hallelujah, then the different vowels and consonants that you end up hearing, while this might hide the listener's comprehension of the text, they do actually help to distinguish between the individual lines. So you're not just hearing a wodge of sound, but able to hear um, the parts of the song if you like. However, the kind of accepted British tradition, common practice in performing 16th century polyphony is perceived to be that it's okay to suppress clarity of text in favour of a more homogenous, sheeny and lovely overall sound. And while in 2024 people can, you know, frankly do whatever they like, I don't think that's a priority that a 16th century singer or choir director would recognise discuss i think two things on that the the firstly is that because of the way the music is structured and of course all this stuff was taught to the composers this was how they earned their stripes wasn't it this is their craft and their, their training how to construct this sort of musical architecture but because of how it's it is constructed each line is both horizontal and vertical so you have a melodic function and a harmonic function in whatever you're doing and your job is to sing both of those kind of in balance somehow, I think. So if you have a dissonance, you'd sing that G sharp, for example, differently than you would if it were a third in an E major chord. That's just a, it's the same note, but it's not the same notes, I think. Um, the second thing about that performance, I think, is that it, I think it's lovely and it's, it's, it's really well sung and, as you say, well wrought. But do you really, for those of us who don't speak Latin, do we really understand the words in a way that the best performances allow us to understand text that's not even native tongue. And uh, if you look at the bit of the psalm of the Song of Songs that Clement has chosen to set, he doesn't just set all of it. So you have to ask also why he selected particular verses. So he goes for um, the lily of the valleys, and he goes for um, like a lily among thorns, which he obviously had to for contractual reasons, but then he skips a few verses and instead of saying, my love is a sealed up fountain, he skips that bit and he jumps to the next verse where he says, my love is a flowing fountain in the gardens, flowing down from Lebanon. So he's got his reasons for choosing the words he's got. And he probably doesn't do the breasts because the Song of Songs is full of, I mean, it's erotic poetry, isn't it? It's erotic poetry that has slightly confusingly ended up in the, in the, in the Bible. I remember doing a choral course once when um, uh, we had to get permission in the church to sing some of the madrigals. And uh, he said, the priest, the Catholic Venetian priest said, yeah, no, that's fine. And then he said, but what's this? You can't sing this. And it was, it was sung of the Song of Songs. Um, and you will get these texts which... 
you know, the, the composers and sometimes writers have done their best to sort of make them applicable for, for church. And it will say, you know, I took thee to a brook and thereto did I show thee my breasts. Alleluia. And <laughs> as if it makes it um, a credit to Roderick Williams for that. Um, and I mean, but the trouble is words don't help us here literally very much. I mean, go back to the point Thomas Aquinas would say that um, scripture is only, I mean, can be read many different ways and literally is only one of them. Um, I suppose what's interesting about Song of Songs, oh, now we're going off on a tangent because we could get onto Palestrina's fourth book of motets, which is all Song of oh. Songs. Oh, oh, <laughs> do, you, do you like it so? One line rubbing itself up against another to make a little bit of passing dissonance. Oh, oh suit um, you, sir. Suit you, sir. <laughs> the, the, the thing is that the intensity of emotion in that text there's there's a kind of philip pullman-esque dividing line between that and 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 the no i put that the wrong way around the the intensity that we would put to that as a sort of secular and sexual thing um is the same intensity that you could feel about religion uh and you know you can read the song of songs as a uh, as an analogy for Christ's love for his church. Or you can just find in that singing this sumptuous music uh, takes you to a sense of religious ecstasy, which is of a similar order to, to profane ecstasy. But that would be the Song of Songs. Exactly. And we've talked about this before, I think, but the, the way that composers expressed sort of physical or carnal desire and religious devotion was exactly the same, really, until really quite late on, I think. You think of Monteverdi's Song of Songs settings in the Vespers, and that they're, they're incredibly charged in that way. It's quite hard to rehearse this stuff, isn't it, without just saying, can you make it a bit more sexy? <laughs> you know, well, if you think of the book four and five magicals from 1603, 1605, Monteverdi, with a priest in Milan, Coppini, reset them as sacred pieces. Mm -hmm. So, si chiovere morire... Oh, Sicure Morire, oh, which is all about I want to die, you know, physical ecstasy. He uh, he puts religious words to with a priest. I mean, Monteverdi was a, became priest, of course. So that that doesn't seem to bother them at all because it's the the urgency of the. Oh, anyway, we're talking about the Song of Songs now, whereas this is meant to be a program about polyphony. Can I throw a thought at you, or thought people listening? I think there is a texture in polyphony. I think we as musicians sing it and we're interested in melody and harmony. Um, but I think for the listener, there is a texture created by consonants that mostly we ignore. Um, and I think it's interesting for a, a group that works together a lot just to play with consonants and to draw consonants into their melodic line rather than sort of you know, popping them like pegs on a line. I know some singing teachers say that, but I think the consonants, once they become part of your line and are properly supported on the body, which is something we tend not always to like, I think that you get a different sort of texture. Uh, the other thing I just wanted to add as, as a tip, when you're singing polyphony and you know you've got an interesting moment coming up or a bit of dissonance, you have to draw attention to your part just before that dissonance. You have to crescendo to create awareness of your line just before it happens there you go um my dad who i always refer back to i know um always used to say that the emotion is mostly in the consonants 
So they need just as much energy and commitment, if not more, than the vowels. There's there's a real, I find, in some of my teaching especially, there's a real misunderstanding about the word legato, which I think is unhelpful to lots of people who are learning to sing, uh, which is that legato is all about vowels. And I think what you were hinting at, Robert, there is that is that well-supported consonants. If you can make friends with your consonants, make them expressive, make them supported, allow them to inform and uh, energize and um, almost inspire your vowels, then you're on the way to being, I think, a, a very fine, you know, doing something very fine. The, the idea that it's all about vowels and you just have to kind of almost apologize for putting the consonants on like a pegs on a line, I think is, is unhelpful, particularly in this sort of music where, as you say, we've got, as singers, we have the text. And there's so many expressive possibilities within all the vowels and all the consonant, consonantal combinations that we can sing. What you know? Why would we not really lean into those? Yeah, is that easier? Do you find in some languages than others? I tell you, a terrible, terrible, terrible language to sing in. That's Danish. You're always on about this, yeah. Ah, uh, Danish. Come on, um, you Danish choirs listening, um, send us in some of your best polyphony because. I've tried it and it's it's really hard. I have hard. to say, I once heard Don Giovanni in Danish, and it was it was brilliant. Just just going to push back a bit on your anti-Dane feeling there. I, I I find that I want to sing all languages in quite an Italianate way, so in a way that you know a double consonant in Italian is fractionally lengthened, and you would lengthen an R before a consonant like Ardo. I find my, myself wanting to do that in English and in German for clarity's sake, because, you know, we just come back to this, you never get people coming away from a concert saying, oh, it was all right, but I just heard the text a bit too much. So more declamation. Uh, it was far to too expressive, yeah. It's, um, it's interesting that you say Italian, because I'm not sure that's necessarily, I mean, I know what you mean, I, know, I think I know exactly what you mean, but it's interesting that we think that German and English and French aren't, healthy languages to sing in i think that's our kind of um default setting but i'm not sure that's necessarily true or helpful we we do half pronounce though in english i mean choirs in english tend to sing the vowel right until the end of the note and then rush through the consonants which don't get properly enunciated in the same way that we tend to with with diphthongs diphthongs tend to be pushed i mean the, the bendy bit of them uh, christ we tend to sing Christ the Lord. And I think there's a sort of golden section moment where some point after the halfway, um, uh, you you should start to turn that kind of thing. But you know, we can't make this into a, a sort of polyphony lesson. But look, there's if you've got lovely, thoughts... There's about a, a, a uni- unanimously turned diphthong. Can we just have a little work moment of praise for that? Yes, a, like a, a nicely tr- turned ankle. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Claire taking us back into the 1920s there. Where we need to be. (laughs) The other question when it comes to words and underlay, of course, with this kind of music, if you're singing from part books or from manuscripts, um, there wouldn't be any underlay there. So you could pretty much make it up as you went along. So the placing of the consonants is very much up to you as an individual. Mm. And also the the way you place a consonant can inform... What someone else does, you you can you can send signals along the line or around around the circle if you like, um, by doing something expressive and proactive like that. I always when I'm singing polyphony, I always remember something my dad used to say, which is that you have 
two ears and one mouth for a very good reason. You should listen twice as much as you as you talk, and that's it's such a good kind of maxim for, for well for music making generally. We don't as as singers we don't tend to have chamber music, do we? We don't have Beethoven quartets or those great you know romantic string quartets like Ravel and Debussy. But I think sixteenth and seventeenth century polyphonies that's where we get those kicks of what what Goethe called a conversation between equals. That sort of that that complete sense of complicity um, that doesn't happen in in a lot of vocal music elsewhere. I don't think that's exactly it. That's what consort singing is for me, and I'm sure for both of you as well. That is, it's chamber music. Mm-hmm. And just to throw in a mini plug here for my Cambridge Early Music Summer School Renaissance Week, July the 28th to August the 4th this year. Um, it's all about that. It's about being a consort singing animal. It's about being a singing chamber musician. And we're working uh, this year on um, music for Margaret of Austria and her circle. So Josquin, Delarue, and all those people. So come and learn how to be a, a singing chamber musician with me. Go and sing Danny Delarue. Yeah, that 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 thing about listening and making your own decisions can only happen when there's not a conductor there. Now, conductors, we're not anti-conductors. We all conduct on occasions. It's more about how can you facilitate? How can you help people to listen? What happens if you stop conducting? Uh, do people start listening more and making their own decisions? Can you mix your choir up so the sopranos all, aren't all together? Um, those sort of things, um, I think, are, are going to be useful. Look, we're going to finish with... Um, one of my favourite pieces. There is an entire episode on this collection of pieces by Daniel Lezure. About two years ago, Eamon and I did uh, one. I think that's really worth going back and having a listen to because this is a piece of polyphony uh, written 1952 and it's for 12 separate voices. He recorded two voices to a part with you two very much in it. And this is an astonishing piece because there's so much going on, yet you seem to be able to hear so much of it. There are these cries of Shema, which I think is Hebrew for listen, and that's one texture. And then there's uh, there are these very just going around each other, and you can just hear so much. And then just rather like the way the Clemens stops in the middle to say secret lilium inter spinas, thus like a, a lily amongst the thorns. Uh, he he stops the, the polyphony and just gives you this shimmery Gershwinish texture at the end. Claire, lovely to see you. Thanks for coming to talk to us. Come and talk to us about other things as well. I'd love to. Thank you very much for having me. Sammy, go away, please. Bye.
the sensational 12-part choral texture of Jean-Yves Daniel Lezure's Le Contique des Contiques, The Song of Songs, Seven Settings. And that was Evangeline there, conducted by me and with both of you. Isn't that just gorgeous? Stunning piece. Very uh, sexy, if I'm allowed to say that. Claire, you had, you had a final thought, didn't you? Because we've all said goodbye, but then you remembered a thing. Yes. Well, thinking about how it's important to have that kind of intimate communication with people that you like when you're singing this kind of music and how important it is to get on with each other. I was thinking again about Jacob Herringman, who I work with a lot, and he wrote a little blog during COVID and he said, music is like love. Nothing is more intimate than the act of making music together. And my best musical moments have been full of the same joy and the same layers of unspoken communication and mutual understanding. And I think he's kind of hit the nail on the head with that. Go on, Sammy, then follow that. I, I know, I think so. I mean, it's nice. It's, it's, it's bang on. That sense of that sense of shared connection is like completely something that is never never enough really in a musical interpretation is it it's it's the other thing that you don't say i I really enjoyed that but they were just two together and i'm just remembering and when you were talking about your father and consonants i remember giles underwood trying to get us to sing more expressively based on the vowels so i'm quite sure this program is going to provoke lots of thought please send us in your voice notes we really only have one so far we've when he had one voice note. Um, so to tell us your thoughts, um, uh, write into us and um, and we'll put them all in the bin. No, no, we won't. We will read them all and be very interested to hear what you have to say. Cheerio. See you next time. Bye-bye. Bye for now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Just before you go, another reminder to try listening on Patreon which costs just a few pounds per month. Or if you prefer, you can very simply make a one-off donation. You can actually do either via choralchihuahua.com. Thanks.